a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on First Lady and Friends, we had an incredible conversation, a really tough but important conversation about child sexual abuse and how we can prevent it, how we can help those who have experienced this kind of trauma. Our guests today were Chris and Betsy from the Sapria organization, and they are doing amazing work. I hope you enjoy the conversation as I did. Let's get proximate. Today on First Lady and Friends, we have some really incredible guests, brand new friends to me this very day, but we've been connected through some of the work we've been doing, and uh, we're just really thrilled to have Chris Yaden here, the executive director of Sapria, and as well as Betsy Karanowski. Did I say that right? Kanarowski. Kanarowski. Oh, I was getting so close. <laughs> Kanarowski, chief program officer. Um, and they are here. They are committed to to really tackling the issue of a sexual assault and sexual abuse. And um, and I, I just think it's really incredible. This month, April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, of course, we're pre- we're preventing it all year long. But this month is is that awareness month. Um, the the colors. Hopefully, you've seen the color blue around, and you've seen the pinwheels around. And um, is it's a really important um, time to focus on this because I think it's an issue that is touched. I would say every person in some way, shape, or form. Would, would you agree to that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, when you look at statistics, both locally here in Utah and nationally, they're very consistent. Uh, nationally, one in five children are sexually abused by age 18. Here in Utah, we have a few different statistics that we see. The Utah Department of uh, Health puts it just over 13%, mm-hmm. which is about one in seven. Uh, then we have information from the CDC. They interview our high school age kids every two years. And our high school age girls report having been sexually assaulted. 21.2% of them report having been sexually assaulted in the last 12 months here in the state of Utah. Gosh. So whether you're looking nationally or here at home, we've got a challenge and it's impacting our families. It's impacting our businesses. It's impacting uh, our, each of our individual lives. Yeah, absolutely. And before we really dive into this, we 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 want to get uh, you know have all the time we can to really address these things and the and the way we're we're doing prevention, the way we're addressing um, therapy, and the things that happen um, after somebody has has experienced this trauma. Um, but let's go back and start, uh, uh, Betsy. Let's let's talk about where do, did you grow up in the state? Did you you know where? I, I see that you. You you spent time here. Your education, your PhD, is here, but you've also spent time in your education elsewhere. Where where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about that and your family. So I grew up in Idaho Falls. So you know, finally making my way to Utah to the big city has been a dream realized <laughs> after growing <laughs> <Fantastic>. up. <laughs> and uh, I did my undergrad at University of Wyoming, 
got a bachelor's degree in social work, did my master's degree at University of Denver in social work, and then a PhD in special ed at the U. Oh, that's amazing. And so growing up in Idaho Falls, you did you have a big family? Did you have a, a small family? You tell me a little bit about your background. I am an only child. Of, oh, wow. See, I come from a family of 10, so that is so uh, unique. My parents moved from the Bay Area and thought, we are going to move to Idaho, which seemed like the most romantic place in the world to them in the early 70s. We're heading for Idaho. <laughs> so, so what was that decision like? They were just, they had work there or they just uh, said, we're just getting out? They, they had work there. So, um, yeah, they moved to Idaho and I grew up there. It was a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, my parents were... Peace Corps volunteers before I was born. So I suppose I was destined to be a social worker. There was no way around it. It's what I grew up in. I love it. So Chris, tell me a little bit about you. So I grew up in Orem, right on the edge of one of Orem's cherry orchards. There aren't many of them left. It's true. Um, My grandfather was a fruit farmer. So I mostly grew up barefoot in a cherry orchard. (laughs) It was an amazing way to grow up. And though Orem looks quite a bit different today, Anytime I go back, I still have the smells from the cherry blossoms, the the view of that beautiful spring at this time of year, those beautiful spring blossoms, and lots of recollection of being out in the orchard playing while Grandpa was working. Mm -hmm. He probably uh, took me out to help him, but I think I did more playing than working, (laughs) as we do when we're younger. I grew up with a pretty big family, six kids. Uh, three boys and three girls, and um, you know each of each of those uh, children have uh, stayed close here here to home. Our, our furthest one away is down south in Kanab, mm. but everybody's here in Utah. And uh, married a girl from Utah, and have six kids myself, plus uh, an exchange student that we call our seventh child that mm. lives in Germany. Oh wow! Okay, that's that's incredible. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, how you got started in this this area. You you're you were formerly Unique yeah. Foundation, and so let's let's talk about that transition, and let's talk a little bit about um, the the work here with uh, preventing uh, child sex abuse. Yeah, it it really starts with our founders, Derek and Shalane Maxfield. Uh, they saw a need. Uh, they sexual abuse had touched people that they love, just like the rest of us. And they had one of those conversations, those pivotal conversations of somebody should do something about this. Yeah. And that turned to we should do something about it. It actually they were already independently wealthy at that point in their lives from selling other businesses. Um, but they felt like they needed to do something great mm-hmm. with their lives. And so this called to them. Uh, as as a way to champion the cause here at home, but also broader uh, from at a national and even global scale. So uh, then they came came the question as they researched it that this is a big problem, and it's going to require a lot of money. How are we going to fund this? Even though they had their their personal wealth, they didn't have what it was going to take to really move the needle on this. So they started a, a, a for-profit company to fund it, and that was Unique Products. And we originally started as the Unique Foundation. We had a really close partnership. 
Uh, we're not a corporate foundation. We never were. We've always been a public charity, but they were a major funder of ours. Well, true to who they are and what they try to do, it isn't about their business. And there came a point in time where they're like, this this needs to grow out out and bigger than the unique family. Mm-hmm. And in order to attract corporate partnerships, broad-based public support, uh, we needed to rebrand. We also need to rebrand with the goal of taking some of our healing services to men. Currently, they're only for women. And the unique brand is very feminine, so we need to rebrand for that. And we also needed a global brand. And and unique, the word, isn't conducive to a lot of languages the way a word like Sapria Mm -hmm. is. So those are the reasons why we rebranded. Uh, the way I would like people to think about Unique's role, they're our, they're our founding partner, always will be, and they continue to support us. They're, we're like their child. Okay. We're 18, <laughs> and they're like, you need to go be bigger and do more than what you could do in our house. And that's the unselfish side of Derek and Shalane Maxfield. That's, that's incredible. Betsy, let's talk a little bit about the – Let's talk a little bit more about statistics. I know okay. I know that we we hear that one in seven or one in five or one in three girls or you know whatever we we hear those, but let's get kind of underneath those and let's talk about what it really looks like um, as far as statistics go. So it's one in five children is the statistic that we use. And again, with statistics, you can they can kind of vary a little bit either way, but that's that's the CDC number that that we use. And I mean, it's easy to say a number, but when you stop and think about a classroom of children, one in five, is it could be a quarter of the kids. Yeah. And that is so hard to think about, but I think it's the reality that we need to talk about. So you, you did, you started in social work. Let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what kinds of things you saw or that that we're seeing now what what kind of behaviors are we seeing what what should be we be looking for as far as like i mean i'm a teacher so mm-hmm. i was i was you know i'm one of those that's legally required to report um there are several other groups of of professionals that are legally required to report i hope everyone reports mm. <laughs> yes any, any suspicion you don't want to ruin somebody's life, but you certainly want to see what what kinds of things are we looking for for kids that, that have experienced this kind of trauma. And so just to start with you talking about reporting, yes, some of us are mandatory reporters, teachers, social workers, coaches, things like that. But I think it's important to remember that we're all ethical yeah. reporters. And I always encourage people to err on the side of caution. These are kids' lives. And Okay, so if you've, you know, made a mistake, it's not true, that's okay. I would rather always try to protect a child than not. And then as for signs, there's physical signs, behavioral signs, emotional signs. And I think one of the hard things is when we're looking at children, um, I have two, two daughters who are in college, and I know how many developmental stages that they went through that I just shook my head and said, really, what is this now? (laughs) And so sometimes we look at things and say, okay, this is acting out. This is a developmental stage. This is something's going on at school. But behavior really tells a story. We communicate through our behavior. And so changes in children's sleeping patterns, um, 
you know, being scared to shower, bathe, go with certain people, acting out, temper tantrums, crying a lot, withdrawal, things like that can be normal everyday things going on that you're like, oh, yeah, that's another stage there. I have a 15-year-old. We, <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah. <laughs> we go through a few of those. <laughs> but it also could be the sign of something different. So having mm-hmm. ongoing open communication is important. And then, of course, there's physical signs, the more typical physical signs that you would think of possibly associated with sexual abuse. Okay. So I guess then what – what happens to uh, so what what's the process I guess so if if you are feeling like you see something or something's a little off what what would be like next steps um, you can call the police or child protection services okay so I I, th- I think that's an important um, way for us to start to mm-hmm. start thinking about it um, let's let's also um, maybe when we come right back let's let's talk more about some of these preventative things that, that we want to get into so we'll do that when we come right back two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do when a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything it was violent it was senseless and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back here with Chris and Betsy from Sapria, and um, we are talking about uh, child sex abuse, and it's a really difficult topic, and, and, but it needs to be talked about. I have a lot of people come to me, especially in the last year or so, and saying, I, I, we, you know, we really need to work on, you know, this, this idea of sex trafficking and all these things. And I'm like, yes and yes. But, and I keep in my gut, I keep thinking, what about making sure this doesn't happen to the one in five children in this state? How do we do that? That's, I guess, where my heart is. I'm always looking at upstream. How do we get upstream? I mean, you don't want to have to. If if we could go through and not have uh, therapy for people that that have been sexually abused, we would think that was fabulous, right? Don't you? That's Absolutely, the, the goal. <laughs> and so for me, and yes, we need to provide that because we know it's happening clearly. Um, but how how do we get upstream of this? I guess that's that's kind of the issue I would like to think about and tackle. So, Chris, talk to us a little bit about this idea of, of getting upstream. Oh, I love this. And I love that you asked. Uh, this is at the heart of what we do in our preventative work. And I, I'm going to share maybe a brief story that yeah. highlights a, a critical principle. But I also want your listeners to know that I'm going to barely scratch the surface to this question. 
And I would all our resources are free on our website. I would encourage people to spend time at Supriya.org to further answer the question you've asked. But let me let me start with the story. My now twenty one year old daughter, when she was in sixth grade in Lehigh, Utah, just down the road from here, she came home and she said, Dad, I heard this word on the playground and I don't know what it means. She said, I know it has something to do with sex, but I don't know what it means. I'm going to just pause there for a minute. Sixth grade girl talking to her dad, willing to ask this question is the key to prevention. So she asked the question, what does the word prostitute mean? Mm. She had heard it on the playground. When we talk about getting upstream, this story highlights the the most critical principle. And, And Betsy referenced it a little bit before the break. And that is open dialogue with our children is the number one preventative factor for child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And it starts at the youngest of ages when we're teaching them the basics about their body Mm -hmm. and boundaries and respecting the space of their siblings. All those things that teach critical principles of consent as well as having open discussions as parents with our children around sexual health. So that kids have the words to describe what they may be experiencing or seeing. Consider the alternative of my daughter. If she didn't feel comfortable asking dad or mom or some other trusted adult, where is she going to go for the answer? And it's Google. Because she's going to get the answer. Yep. And if she goes to Google, she's opened up a door to predatory behavior that is going to put her at in immediate harm's way. Most sexual abuse today is the, the actual physical side of sexual abuse is preceded by some sort of digital interaction. Okay. So that's a key part of being upstream. A couple other key upstream principles that we need to understand is that parents are the linchpin. There are so many other good perfect per, Uh, preventative things going on. We need good policy. We need good things in our education systems, good after-school programs, one of your initiatives, great foster care, right? Empowered educators, another one of your show-up initiatives. We need all of those things to bolster the child. They're all part of the equation. But if mom and or dad or whoever is that primary caregiver in that child's life is missing, the other things almost become... uh, I don't want to be callous and say irrelevant, but the ability for those other things to move the needle on this particular issue, it's really unlikely they will significantly reduce incident rates. So we need the combined effort of all that good work going on to support the family, but we've got to empower mom and dad to know the signs, know how to educate their children. And here's the best news about this. It doesn't take a significant amount of time or effort for mom or dad to learn how to prevent and to implement behaviors that are preventative. The only reason my daughter was willing to ask me, her dad, the question about sex and use the word prostitute is because there had been hundreds of little conversations before that. And they're normal and natural in our household. They happen every day. They happen every week. They're comfortable. So when something that could put our children at risk comes up, they're willing to ask. And intervention 
is one of the most critical parts of prevention. Yes. Let me give you a contrasting story of a sixth grader, myself. So I was in sixth grade, and I I seriously think about this often. I was sitting in my classroom, and one of my friends in my class, who I, I knew just from school. It wasn't like I knew her outside of school. This uh, middle school, now we have towns coming from, you know, all different. So it's somebody I had just met. And she started crying. And I said, you know, so me and my couple of other friends were saying, what's, what's the matter? What's the matter? Are you okay? Are you okay? Through her sobbing, heaving tears. And at this point, I'm like, I have no idea where the teacher was. (laughs) But through her sobbing, heaving tears, and with my little, I hadn't, you know, didn't, there weren't a lot of conversations about sex going on in my family, a little bit, but right. not not a ton. And through my, just what I knew and basically what she was telling me, um, she told me that her brother was sexually abusing mm-hmm. her. And truthfully, the words she was using and the limited vocabulary I had and her p- making us as friends promise not to tell, I never said a word. Yeah. I never told my parents. And to this day, I'm like, I'm sick about it um, that I that I didn't do something. I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to do. So, Betsy, let's talk a little bit about this our our brain our our biological reactions when faced with trauma i mean chris you talked about having those connections in our heads already let's talk a little bit about what happens to someone when that when the abuse is starting or or you know it, it, grooming starts to happen or whatever it is what what is our biological reaction so there's three different responses to trauma, and you've probably heard that fight, flight, or freeze. And so fight and flight are pretty obvious. But freeze is usually what happens to children because if you think about it, it's not safe to fight someone who's larger than you, someone who is responsible for you, someone who maybe the provider in the home has – there's a power differential – So you can't fight or flight, and so kids freeze. And that freeze keeps people safe. Basically, our brains kind of shut down, take you to somewhere else. Um, We use the term dissociate where you're like, okay, something bad is happening to me, but I can go elsewhere. And that's usually what happens with children because they don't have an option. Mm. Yeah, and and, you know, as they get older – I know the the issue with consent is is a problem with, with that freezing, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I I was talking earlier about a book that I read, and it's called The Unthinkable. Um, it's how how we deal with disasters, and it's kind of talks about big disasters, um, but it also talks about the idea that um, if we have data points in our head, if we know what to do, our bodies won't freeze. Um, you know, as say a teenager, if if there's an incident where there's potential sexual assault, the, if we have, you know, it's like if there's a fire and you have 
prepared and you've walked through your fire route and you've walked through how to get out of the house and and what to do if you're able to if you're able to have all those uh, scenarios in your head what don't you think that that translates into being able to overcome sort of those initial fight flight or freeze so there's there's two parts of that i want to address um I, I just want to call out where you say that freezing is not consent because I want to make sure that yes. everyone hears that. Yes, thank because you. Because it's just like being drunk and passed out is not consent. Exactly. If yeah. you have a history of trauma responses, let's say it's the 16-year-old who's also had abuse earlier yeah. in his or her life and they freeze, that's not consent. That's a trauma response. Yes. Consent yes. is. Thank you. That's, that's yeah. exactly what I meant. So thank <laughs> yes. you for re- making my words make sense. I, I never miss an opportunity to talk about that. <laughs> yes. Um, I think the other thing that you spoke to, it really speaks to what Chris just said. This is educating our children about abuse. This is giving them the words and for what's happening and talking about boundaries and the ability to say no and my body belongs to me and all of these things that might head off some grooming things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are instances where it's not going to matter what that child says or does. Yeah. However, those little conversations with parents, um, like Chris was talking about, those are so – they're just key. Ongoing communication so people can say, hey, I'm not feeling quite right about this. This person – is crossing some boundaries for me. And that's laying those you know, neural pathways in your brain so that when something happens or it's getting closer, they know who to reach out to for help, talk about. And unfortunately, if something does happen, then they have the ability to say, hey, this bad thing happened to me and you can get them help. Mm. How do you... I've struggled with this as a parent. How How do you... Teach a child all these things, and as a parent, learn all these things yourself, without sort of, I mean, we talk about their innocence or, or you know, just how, how do we do that without them being fearful of adults in their lives? Can I take that one, Betsy? <laughs> of course you can. So we have a saying, uh, defending in- innocence is, is not defending ignorance. Uh, our children need to be empowered with words. They need to be empowered with boundaries. And what we find, and and I'll speak more from my experience as a parent than even from a professional side, because I've, I've lived this and breathed this. Mm-hmm. We've talked to our kids about age-appropriate topics from the youngest of ages all the way till they leave our house. Uh, not once have I seen either their behavior or their words say, I'm more fearful because you talk to me. Mm-hmm. I've seen the exact opposite. I've seen my, my daughter in high school stand up to a boy that kept hugging her when she said no several times and get firm and in his face till he backed off. Mm-hmm. That's empowering. Yeah. And I don't know that that boy would have sexually assaulted her or not. I'm not saying he would have. But it kind of doesn't matter, right? But like, it kind of doesn't mean... matter. It was it was her space. Yeah. It was her boundary, and she held it. Mm. That's very empowering. 
and it actually builds courage and resilience in our kids and dispels fear. It's important that's age appropriate. I'm not talking to my three-year-old about sexual assault yet, but I am talking to my three-year-old about, hey, this is your body. This is what your body does. These are the names of you know your arm or leg or whatever. I'm teaching those things, and I'm teaching my seven-year-old, hey, when your sister says stop, it means stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm teaching my eight or nine-year-old about, hey, pornography is coming your way. How are you going to deal with it when you are exposed to it? Or, uh, you know, this is this is how sexual intimacy works. Because I don't want someone else to be the first one to teach them about one of those principles mm-hmm. as a parent. Uh, so I'll take my parenting hat off a little bit and put my professional hat back on and just say, this is easier than it sounds. The resources are available. Again, it's priya.org, but there's also a lot of other good organizations in our own state that have excellent resources to help parents. And so, uh, if you'll just spend a little bit of time, put this issue on your list Start having that first awkward conversation. Awkward will turn into comfortable and fluid and normal and natural really fast. Yeah. So, Betsy, what is there anything else that you would you would add to that? One of the things that always strikes me is as parents, we get really frustrated as our children say no. Right. Think of a two year old and every answer is no. But that's something we want to empower in our children is an ability to have choices and to say no on things that are low stakes things that you can still run your household with yeah. and everything. But teaching at an early age, you get to make some decisions and you get to say no. And I think that's so important. That's interesting. And and I'm thinking about um, – I think as I learned more about sort of these ideas of, of, of empowering children around their own bodies – I remember thinking about um, when, you know, you and it's very innocent and grandparents are wonderful, but it's, you know, come give grandma a hug before she you leave. And the kid's like, no, yo, no, you go over and give grandma a hug. And I thought, you know, as I as I kind of went through my parenting, I thought, no, it's OK if they're okay with not I mean they can certainly say thank you grandma for letting me come or thank you know whatever it is but they don't need to go give grandma a hug if they're not into it <laughs> so it's kind of a thought I've yeah. had. you're you're right on and and you know depending on the relationship if the relationship's good most of the time they want to give grandma a hug exactly right? yeah but giving them the choice sends a clear message yeah. you get to choose you're in charge of your body you're in charge of how you show affection and others show affection to you and so it's 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 a often it's an example that's often referred to that carries into so many other relationships. I just want to share one piece of good news back to this topic and that is there is a huge part of sexual abuse that we can prevent fairly easily and that's older child on younger child. So all these principles we've been talking about are not only good for helping reduce the likelihood your child will be abused, but also reduce the likelihood that your child will abuse somebody. Because a 14-year-old that's abusing a 9-year-old is a completely different issue than a pedophile. Yeah. 
and we kind of lump them together, and they're not. And nearly half of child sexual abuse is an older child, usually a teenager, abusing a younger child. We can knock out half of child sexual abuse just by parents engaging. Wow, that's that's really powerful. I want to keep talking about this and and how you 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 talked a little bit, you alluded to it, but we the stuff we're working on at show up um, how this plays in, and we'll we'll do that when we come right back. We are back here on First Lady and Friends. We're talking with Betsy and Chris about our uh, uh, our shared passion for uh, preventing child abuse, uh, specifically sexual child abuse. And um, we want to get into the fact that we intersect in so many ways and the stuff that we're working on that I didn't even sort of realize um, that we were we were intersecting. But this issue, of course, it just sort of permeates our society. And, and Chris, off, off uh, Mike was saying uh, about car seats. I love that analogy. We yeah. talk a little bit about sure. that. So I was born in 1974. My first child was born in 1998. When I grew up, I don't even know that a car seat existed in Warham. There was probably one or two. <laughs> say, I've never seen lot. one when I was <laughs> Right? We're close to the same age. <laughs> by, the, by the time I was a parent, not only myself, but all my peers had their children in car seats. We went through a societal transformation in one generation of parents because of awareness, education, and a lot of money thrown at that problem. Yeah. And we're going we're starting that same transformation with sexual abuse. The fact that we're even talking about it and sharing this with your listeners, that's that awareness piece. Yep. The org, where the education is, that's the education piece. And as funding continues to to grow, we're going to see a similar type of transformation with this societal issue. I hope so. I really do. And I, I think you're absolutely right because we, we have to. Yeah. We have to. This cannot continue. People have to be able to go through their lives without this type of trauma. Um, we have so much other trauma we'll work on after that, but this is really important. But uh, so our show up initiative, we have four focus areas and we've been working really hard on them. And, and we, we want to talk about how this intersects. So the first one is educator wellness. Um, we've been talking really hard a lot about how we get this message to teachers that they matter, that what they're doing is important and that their wellness is key to being able to teach uh, children how to be well. So let's talk about how Betsy, how that interacts with, with what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So we have amazing teachers in Utah. I agree. Yes. (laughs) And I have also been an educator and, I think sometimes people think of this myth of like, oh, the teacher just sits and teaches English or chemistry or math and that's it. That's not it at all. Teachers are involved with the holistic well-being of a child. And one of those ways that teachers, I think, can feel really empowered is to be educated about signs of child sexual abuse and prevention because teachers deeply care about their students and they want to keep them safe. And in the younger grades, kids are there all day. So this is uh, an area where – and I'm not saying – I know teachers are so busy. Yes. <laughs> and there's so much. But just having an awareness of, of what these issues are. Um, 
So the child information, I want to say this right, child welfare information gateway, which is childwelfare.gov. Um, Sapria is listed on there under their school-based prevention page. We're actually the first resource. Fantastic. I mean, we're the first, but all the rest are really good, too. They're all amazing <laughs> resources. Yes. We'll put that but, out there. Um, I, I encourage teachers to go to that website or to our website, sapria.org, and just take five minutes. Look at what those signs are. Look at things you can do for prevention and educate yourself because kids who are being hurt, who are experiencing trauma, have a very difficult time learning because yeah. they're consumed with staying safe, not with learning their times tables. So we need to catch this, support them, get them the help they need, and teachers can really play a role in that. Yeah, and and what we're learning with um, the the things we're talking about with this, you know, emotional self-reliance and emotional intelligence mm-hmm. skills is that when those needs are addressed, the academic performance actually significantly increases. And the behavior, uh, the, the negative behaviors and the things that the kids are exhibiting that, that prevent them from connecting with their teacher and or connecting with other students in the class um, really are decreased when when these issues are addressed uh, properly. And so I, I just think that's critically important. Um, we're also working in foster care, again, with the ch- child welfare um, area. Kids in foster care, first of all, are usually they have already been abused in some way, shape or form. Um, And you can probably, Chris, tell us a little bit more about the statistics of that. But what can we do as far as our foster children? How can we connect um, in this area? Yeah, there needs to be a little more research to really hone in on on the statistics um, and, and make them firm. But we do know for sure that incident rates are significantly higher for children that are in foster care. And for foster parents, it, it's not unlike the teacher piece. A big part of their well-being and emotional resilience is giving them the tools and the resources that they need to care for those that they love, including these foster children. They become that primary caregiver. Yeah. They become that parent for that child and fill that role. And, you know, foster parents – um, amaze me, the yeah. sacrifice, the willingness, and if they'll spend a little time educating themselves about sexual abuse on both sides, both the prevention and the healing side, because it's likely they will have to deal with both, yeah. it will empower them and help them with their own well-being, not unlike the conversation we were having about the teachers. Yeah, no, that is exactly right. And and really, statistically, kids in foster care are significantly increased rate of suicide, yeah. increased rate of incarceration, of you know all these social tra- troubles because of the trauma that they've faced. So I love that idea of really supporting foster parents and families to to do that work of healing and prevention is. I'll share just a couple of stats to reinforce what you just said. Uh, So an individual that's been sexually abused is three times more likely to attempt a suicide. Not to be suicidal or have suicidal ideation, to actually attempt. Uh, 85% have a diagnosed mental health disorder by age 30. 
So foster foster families are dealing with the acute impact of this early childhood trauma that leads to these life outcomes that we fight every day to reduce, yeah. including substance abuse, eating disorders. I could share stats on yeah. each of these. And yeah. and yes, they're corollary stats, but when you get that many corollary stats, it's not a coincidence. Early childhood trauma, whether it's sexual abuse that we're talking about today or physical abuse or neglect, is really at the root of many of our societal social ills that we're trying to fight every day. That's exactly right. Another of our areas is service. And um, you're you're participating in this area of foster care. Yeah. And service. And service. So as it relates to service, and I love that this is one of your initiatives to get people involved in service. We're we're a community of service oriented people. That's no that's that's no secret. The state of Utah loves to serve. Well when when it comes to service opportunities, we can be a source of service opportunities, whether it's for groups or individuals. If you want to help adult female survivors of childhood sexual abuse, we have service projects that can be done from home. They can be done at a workplace. They can be done at our office. And you get to calm I'll, – I'll just, I'll just describe one of them. Preparing blankets for the women that come through our uh, four-day in-person retreat program. It's one of the very first things they get. Because as they come to deal with their childhood sexual abuse from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they are nervous. The anxiety is filling their body. They've probably not talked about it. And if they have, they haven't talked about it very much. And here they are about to open this wound. And those blankets get wrapped around them. And they don't leave those blankets the whole time they're there. And... I see them when we see them afterwards, they still have them. You know, it's a little bit of the Linus effect, not from the childhood standpoint, but providing those critical comforts, that compassion. So that's just one example, helping to prepare those blankets of how people can serve survivors of childhood. And Utahns love to make blankets and quilts. So (laughs) so it's the perfect perfect, uh, service that we can do. And then just finally, let's talk about a Special Olympics. And I know people are thinking, how does that tie into to child abuse and child sex abuse? But Betsy, you again, you your PhD in in uh, special education, and just I want to talk a little bit about the the rate of abuse among our kids with disabilities. I will try not to talk on and on for the next eight hours because I know that this podcast is not that long. But um, this is an incredibly important topic and really near and dear to my heart for the the reasons you said. Um, children with disabilities are, at a minimum, three times more likely to be sexually abused. The research is hard to get due to a variety of factors, but the research ranges anywhere between three times more likely to be sexually abused up to like 6.5 times more likely. Children with multiple disabilities are at higher risk, so think a physical disability with a communication disorder or something like that. Um, And I think there's a lot of myths around children with disabilities and sexual abuse, things like Well, who would abuse a child with a disability? And I know we all like to think no one would, but unfortunately, 
that's not accurate. Another myth is, well, because of the disability, they don't really experience trauma. And in fact, when we look at the research, it shows children with disabilities actually may have a tougher time for a variety of reasons, kind of processing that trauma and working through it. And so the same things apply to children with disabilities as they do with um, typically developing children. So you want to talk about those boundaries. You want to teach body ownership. A very big one is that saying no, Mm -hmm. because sometimes with um, kids with disabilities, we're teaching compliance so much. So saying, yeah, it's okay for you to say no. You get these choices. Um, Teaching healthy sexuality is important. And it's interesting because often we think, well, we would do that at whatever cognitive level a child is with. But that's not actually – that's not true. It has to be based on what biological age they are and then you shift the content Mm -hmm. and how you're approaching it. But their bodies are going to mature, so you still need to be having those sexuality – healthy sexuality conversations. And I think – I just really encourage parents and teachers and people interacting with these kiddos, give them the words to say they're being hurt for their body parts. Um, I've read interviews with people as adults who who are adults with disabilities saying, I was being hurt and no one ever gave me the words to say what was happening. And that just gets me in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And and even if it's not actual verbal words, if it's a sign, mm-hmm. a sign language, we teach mm-hmm. our kids that are nonverbal Absolutely. a lot of sign language because they're sometimes very receptive to language. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just not expressive. And if you give people signs, um, that's that's one way to, to help kids be able to still feel empowered and be able to communicate uh, what what's happening. So I love that. And definitely watch the behavior also because, as I said before, behavior speaks volumes. And sometimes just like they're typically developing peers, we think, oh, this must be a thing related to disability Mm -hmm. when, in fact, they're trying to tell us something. And be an ally. I guess with with our unified sports, with the Special Olympics, there are just – such emotional stories. One I just heard last night from a teacher who said this has absolutely changed the culture in their school, um, that kids are developing friendships so that they have peers as allies for them. And they ha- she had a student who was a peer on the basketball team with the with a student with disabilities. And she went around to every one of her this child's classes and said, please help her. If she needs help, this is what you need to do. And this is how you do it. And I mean, we're just, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And, and it takes all of us working together to, to protect our children, to uh, make sure that every child has a sense of love and belonging in the most healthy ways possible. Um, so I appreciate all you guys are doing. Um, thank you so much, Chris, Betsy. You guys have been amazing. You're amazing partners with Show Up, and, and we really appreciate that, and we appreciate your expertise. And, and we'll leave the information on, on our outros to make sure that everybody can can contact you and, and get those education tools that, they, that, that we need. So thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been so delightful. Yes, thank you so much. You can find Sapria at sapria.org for more information on how to prevent and education around child sex abuse, as well as childwelfare.gov. Thanks for being a friend.